Hey everybody, before we get into the show, I wanted to let you know we've got another live show coming up. We will be back at Maya Cinemas on Thursday, May 23rd for Furiosa, the latest in the Mad Max series. We are so excited for this one. Joining me to talk about it, we've got Sam Novak, Shahab Zargari, and Tony Gonzalez. A great lineup. It's going to be an awesome movie. We are so excited to talk about it. So make sure to check the show notes. There are opportunities to win tickets. You could also buy tickets. And we hope to see you there Thursday, May 23rd, 6 p.m. at Maya Cinemas for Furiosa. Right, welcome to another episode of Piecing It Together, the podcast where we take a look at a new movie and try to figure out what movies inspired it. And today on the show, we're talking about Sam Mendes' latest, Empire of Light, which uh, we recorded a little while back, um, and I'm happy to be talking about it now. It's a movie that I didn't love everything about, but there are certain things that work and certain things that don't, and we get into a lot of interesting stuff, I think, on this episode. Joining me is Chris Cranock. He has been on the show before. He's a filmmaker here in Las Vegas. We actually covered his latest film on the show a while back, and uh, it's always great to have Chris on the show. So we've got a great conversation coming up. Before we get to it, I do want to remind you, as always, to make sure you are subscribed to Piecing It Together, wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. You can, of course, find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, any of the major podcast apps. And while you're there, maybe drop a five-star rating and review. We'd appreciate that. You can also follow us on social media at PiecingPod, join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, and don't forget about our Produced by David Rosen Patreon, where I post bonus and advanced content, as well as stuff from Awesome Movie Year and from my music career, so lots of great stuff over there. It's patreon.com slash Rosen. So with that said, let's talk some Sam Mendes. Chris Cranock is back from Europe and here to talk with me. Chris, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. I'm uh, getting ready to go on my own little trip, but, uh, you know, by the time that this episode comes out, that'll be long in the rear view, so I don't even know what I'm talking about here. <laughs> <laughs> People will just think, oh, well, I hope you had a nice time. That's right. That's right. I'm sure I will have a great time on that trip, and... Uh, Maybe you'll be on your next one. But hey, we're here to talk about Empire of Light. We're here to talk about some Sam Mendes today. Mm-hmm. You a big Sam Mendes fan? That's a stretch. Yeah. He, you know, I mean, I mean, he's so good. He's really talented. Sure, you know, sure. Do I like every movie? No, you know. I, don't, I think he's lost an edge recently for mm-hmm. me. Because yeah, I loved, uh, you know, when he started Big American Beauty, and I even really loved Jarhead. And yeah. I loved uh, Road to Perdition, which sure. is kind of a forgotten gem you know and a lot of people like it now it's kind of getting a cult following so i was a big sam mendez fan and then right around the james bonds mm. i kind of lost interest yeah and the revolutionary roads that was a clunker yeah. and so and then the away we goes mm. also not great so sure. yeah so you know well i mean la- the last one was 1917 and i feel like a lot of people felt like that recaptured something i mean at mm-hmm. least it, at least it was a uh you know, a big swing, you know, in doing that kind of a film. And so 
he's kind of on an upward slope here, uh, yeah. even though, spoiler alert, neither of us really liked this movie that much. But, you know, there's still interesting things that I think he's trying to do. Well, I'd, actually, to be more accurate, I liked all four movies right. that <laughs> were Empire yeah. of Light. That's yes. really the problem. I have objective criticism about it, but it was really good. There was so much good in it. And yeah. It's an interesting thing being such a personal script, which we can get into and right. stuff. And, and with 1917, it, a lot of people said they didn't like it, but it feels like it was almost on principle because mm. it was such an Oscar Beatty sure, type sure. movie. But I really enjoyed it, even even with the whole kind of cinematography stunt mm-hmm. that it was and all that. And so, but I enjoyed it. I mean, it had it was a visceral experience. So yeah, yeah. overall, I think he's a hit and miss. But what great, what director isn't? Yeah. You know what I mean? He's a really talented guy. And 1917 was like, you know, as big movie theater guys, like that was like, you got to go back to the movie theater for this one kind of movie. And so that's always exciting to me. And of course, now we're talking Empire of Light, a movie all about how amazing the uh, movie theater experience is. You know, allegedly that's what it's about. It's also about, yeah, (laughs) three or four or five or six (laughs) other things. Yeah. But uh, we'll get into a lot of those along the way, I'm sure. you know, I, one other thing about Sam Mendes before we jump into the puzzle pieces, but I did just read this like right before you got over here to record this, that mm-hmm. this is his first solo script. Yeah. I hadn't realized that going yeah. into this. So that's kind of interesting. Like, you know, and this is going to come up later, I'm sure, with some of our puzzle pieces, but like it being more of a personal project for mm-hmm. him to, you know, m- put his stamp on his first solo script. I think sure. it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's funny not to sound kind of caddy uh but it, for me it felt like the the problems lie in the script yeah you know i mean i think you know sam mendez is a obviously great director and he's a great storyteller and those words don't necessarily mean great writer right and so you sometimes you need a writer who who is a professional or or skilled in that department to kind of rein you in yeah when you have ambitious ideas or especially when things are very personal yeah you know we're, look, we're, we're looking down the barrel of the fablemans which mm-hmm. apparently is based on the spielberg childhood thing but I doubt he wrote the script himself. Right. Yeah, you because know, you need some type of some uh, objectivity. Right. And maybe the script lacked, the, which is responsible for its lack of focus, which mm-hmm. I think is both our main criticism. So yeah, it's interesting. I'm, I'm of course I'm happy for him. It seems like it's a new place for his career, and you should take ri- you should take risks. Sure. Absolutely. So I would never I would never denigrate it based on that. Absolutely. Well, let's start getting into some puzzle pieces. What do you have for your first one? All right. So my first one is not one that I necessarily think the filmmaker was aware of because it's relatively new. But I do think it's worth mentioning that sometimes there's these things in the air where similar movies start coming out. Like, right after Roma came <clears throat> out, there was, like, a bunch of different Romas. Right, You know, sure. like, Hand of God came. And, and they're all similar, and they're, like, this kind of flashback childhood kaleidoscope-type thing. Yes. And so for this movie, I'm gonna my first puzzle piece is going to be Belfast. Sure, sure. It feels like a bell... It feels like the obvious response to the Kenneth Branagh, you know, I'm going to look back at my own childhood and kind of dramatize it, and it has social elements in it, and has love stories in it, and it has a lot of different threads, which I, I was a little underwhelmed with Belfast. It didn't mm-hmm. like blow my hair back, but it did feel more of a congealed storyline than, yeah. this, than this one did. Yeah. This one, as you kind of use the phrase, swung for the fences, maybe in regards to 1917, but this one as well. And so, yeah, so it's to me, it feels like a Belfast... Uh, that Belfast vibe was in the air. Yeah. And that's what... Maybe we might get these more reflective films from right. filmmakers that are now in their 40s, 50s, and 60s that we have been growing up with, yeah. where I think we're going to start getting more reflective films. 
Right. Absolutely. And and like you said earlier, you mentioned Spielberg with the Fablemans. I mean, yeah. that is in that same vein. I might as well, I was going to save this one for later, but I might as well throw it out there right now, as long as you're bringing up Belfast. Uh, I was thinking of Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza. Mm. Um, you know, I, I, another personal story, you know, reflecting back to childhood, uh, you know, that one more with like a love affair involved and uh, all of the things happening like on the outskirts of Hollywood, like, of you know, movies are happening and being made, but they're not necessarily the ones that are making them. And the same <laughs> can be said for here in Empire of Light. They're just working at the theater where they're getting shown. And so it's not a Hollywood movie per se, but it is around the world of movies. And uh, all of those things are, of course, going to be the things that appeal to a filmmaker who's looking back at their life. So it makes sense that those are the things that they kind of go to when making that kind of reflective film sure and i definitely think there. i mean i not to plug my own trip but being <laughs> please you know, do but, <laughs> but being on this trip i had the for, good fortune of going you know visiting you know doing the Cannes film festival and doing venice and th- th- so many of the films were somewhat warmly received or kind of wish-washy and a lot of people were saying oh it's the covid you know the covid festival basically there's this is still the the kind of the mindset that we're getting out of the COVID years. Yeah. And so, which is interesting to me because minus the death, the COVID was a ball for me. Like I, <laughs> right. I loved it. And yeah. so I was really creative and it was a good mental place for me. Yeah. Like again, except for the tragedy, which was horrible. horrible. Sure. Sure. But, uh, but otherwise it was a very creatively rich period. And so it was kind of, it's weird to see these movies that are feel like we're kind of coming out of that. And mm-hmm. I think even empire of light, maybe is influenced by the whole shifting in the world of like, we need to get back out to these places that we feel are important and symbolic and filmmakers in a very cliched way, always talk about cinemas being their churches and Mm. all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, I've said it too, but that's besides the point. We're those guys. I mean, come on. Like (laughs) even if we try not to, but, uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, and it's not just COVID. It's also shifting attitudes in, you know, moviegoers. And, and, yeah, the you streaming know, service, yeah. maybe even less, less COVID and more Netflix. Yeah. Another absolutely. type of COVID with a whole other type of casualty. <laughs> you know? A lot of casualties. A lot there. of casualties there. Yeah. But yeah, and we'll kind of piggyback on your Paul Thomas Anderson, one of my other main ones. And I think I even said this to you when we left the theater was Phantom Thread came mm-hmm. to mind. Sure. And I think it's because it, it's this kind of, and I love Phantom Thread. Mm. I mean, I'm not a big Paul Thomas Anderson fan. You know, it's like I he's a real hit and miss for me as well. But man, Phantom Thread was superb. Yeah, and I and I really enjoy that film. But there's something about it too that's kind of this quiet, reflective story about a middle aged person mm-hmm. who's having trouble with romance, who has their own mental illness. Yeah, uh, and there's and there's just an atmosphere about it that's similar. There's, you know, there's kind of a, um, a quieter, slower vibe, which yeah. I think was more haunting in a Phantom Thread. I think it kind of bound, made that, it had a more Hitchcockian feel in that film, sure. where this one is more nostalgic and more dreamy. But it's definitely even tonally very similar, and yet, and also features kind of that middle-aged mental illness vibe. Sure. To, to that mental illness vibe, one of the things that I wasn't quite sure where exactly Sam Mendes was going with this is... Like, I, I don't feel like anybody is going to be okay here. You know? <laughs> and, oh, yeah. And that, at the end of the film? Yeah. yeah and no, and no. that's the thing with Phantom Thread, too. It's like, you know, yeah. these people are not going to be okay after the events no. that we've uh, watched unfold. And so, you know, yeah, tone-wise, I, I think it makes a lot of sense to bring that up here. Yeah, it kind of felt the same. You know, again, I think Phantom Thread... 
Phantom Thread is the kind of film that probably didn't do huge business. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like it's a Marvel blockbuster film, but it's a legacy picture because it's such an established filmmaker. So you get your theatrical release and you get all these things. Uh, but it's not like it's, you know, highly marketed or pumped onto the on the uh, streaming service world. And so what these movies do, I think great films by great filmmakers tend to influence filmmakers more than the average audience. Right. You know, it's, there's so many. Like kind of, I think that's what kind of Roma did. Roma basically made every director wake up and be like, oh man, I want to make my Roma. Sure. Yeah, I mean, and so I feel like, and, and this is not, not to, this is a whole other conversation for an entirely different podcast, but I know that Skyfall, Sam Mendes' debut mm. in James Bond was essentially The Dark Knight. It's right. Like beat for beat, The Dark Knight. Sure. It's just missing a man in a bat suit. Look at, look at you with the puzzle pieces I know. for other movies. I'm sorry. It's wow. a whole other conversation. I love but it. But what I'm saying is I know Sam Mendes is, uh, is acutely aware of what's happening. Mm. He's watching films. He's a thinking person. And then he's excellent at ripping them off yeah. and pretending that it's something original. Oh, man, I said I was going to put the knives, I was going to keep the knives in. I just, whoa, for you! No, I'm just going to. The Christopher Nolan fans are going to come for you, Chris. I hope they come. Yeah. Whoever's left. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm I'm sure there's legions. Yeah. Because, you know, he does things in a non-linear way, so he's a genius, obviously. The world's going to change forever next year. Yeah. Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer. We haven't seen history in a reverse order. (laughs) You don't even know what's going to, the bomb's going to implode inward. Well, I'll go with another piece here. Uh, this is, I, I feel like, probably the most obvious one. I'm going to go with cinema parody. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, we, we just covered it on Awesome Movie Year, actually, just recently. And I, I loved it. I know you weren't as hot on it as Mm-mm. I was, but I, I, I get it. It's a little syrupy. A little, it is. Yeah. Saccharine. Yeah. But, I hate being told what to feel. Yeah, I know. I get it. But God damn it, is it good. <laughs> um, you know, but, but as far as, like, you know, a young kid, like, learning sure. about life through, you know, a friendship with a projectionist and, mm-hmm. you know, living his life through the power of cinema and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all there. And... <laughs> You know, I, I forget, honestly, um, God, I, my brain is just so full of stuff that like, I forget things so quickly, but, um, whether or not the director was reflecting, if this fits into that, just from a different time, reflecting back on his own childhood at I all. I believe it was. Yeah. yeah. I think it was. It was very, really based on a personal life experience, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Yeah. I want to say it was. I think it was. Yeah. And if it's not, who cares? It doesn't matter. I'm sure. Right, he, I'm exactly. sure he said that in a press junket. <laughs> You know, <laughs> sounds good. Yeah, he's like, I knew that projectionist. He was my own granddaddy. I'm sure that happened yeah. somewhere. Yeah, but, but yeah, no, it's, no. I mean, yeah, it's not a bad film. And and for me, Paradiso works better. This is the one of the few times I've ever agreed with a producer over a director, and they were, they should have kept the 30 minute mm. director's cut. Right. You know, I was like, okay, this is, we're already tiptoeing on unbear, unbearable on the normal release. <laughs> yeah. So we should not just add 30 extra minutes. Yeah. Now, I'm, I love movies as much as the next guy, mm. yeah, maybe more. And I love the cinema experience. But yeah, that one doesn't quite work for me. But it works as a puzzle piece because how could you avoid it? Right. Absolutely. So I have two movies that I'll touch on more, bri- more briefly because I want to consolidate them a little. They're kind of making the same point. Mm. And it kind of comes from a uh, Paradiso side, sure. which is The Majestic. Sure. Frank Darabont's movie. Yeah. And Frank Darabont is such a talented guy. He's almost too talented. He's so good. Mm-hmm. That doesn't always mean that his films are good. It's one of those. He's just. I, I think he could fix anything. I think yeah. For years he was a script doctor and stuff, and he, and so I I think he is just a guy I really really respect. And so even the majestic is a, is a beautiful kind of saccharine film, kind of soft. And, yeah. You know, 
they even have like really intense filters on the lenses so everyone's dreamy like the 1940s and stuff yeah like. i would say that comes from the same place yeah like, right yeah yeah, yeah absolutely. like overly dramatized and that's the thing that's weird to me about empire light is that it's like this is supposed to take place in the 80s but it felt like it was the 50s right yeah for sure that was another thing that i felt was odd you know that it didn't quite jive in terms of the time period it was supposed to be critiquing right if it was supposed to be in kind of an abstract time where there was the, a blending that makes sense but right. because it was so specific in terms of social commentary and criticism of the the race issues at the yep. time i feel like it might have taken been a better choice to make it feel more like an 80s film yeah and they they also took great pains to make sure the right movies were playing because we just finished awesome movie year on the uh, year of 1980 mm -hmm. and it was uh, actually one of my favorite parts in the movie was seeing like all the movies we were covering on that season yeah we're playing at the theater and it's like oh wow they're like there they are they're right there they're right there yeah. someone in the research department knew about the year 1980 yes so that's true they did that. their wikipedia they did. <laughs> so the majestics one but the one i want to spend slightly more time on is a great film a really important film that i feel should be seen more and succeeds where a lot of these films i don't want to say fail but mm. just feel overly demonstrative you know it's a movie called the long day closes Okay. Which is a movie by an English director named Terence Davies. And Terence Davies was uh, a Manchester boy, uh, grew up as a closeted gay man in a very homophobic time and put that into his work mm -hmm. and made films eventually as he came out as in, in his young adult life and was open about his sexuality and put it into his films. He made movies that were about very quiet, reserved people battling with internal issues and they kind of usually put it in the framework of working class people or the cinema and, and long day closes especially has a flavor about escaping real life when you when you go into the movies yeah there's a young boy who's kind of poor and might be battling with his sexuality but not ever said bluntly you know sure. the film is far too has far too much artistic integrity to just put things like out, out there the kid doesn't even know so how would we know All right. type of thing All right but he escapes into the cinema and and finds a new life in, in that realm. And so it's a really delicate, beautiful film, underseen movie, one that's barely appreciated. Same with all Terrence Davies' films, although he continues to make films now. He just releases a movie every couple of years, and they're typically superb. They're really, really wonderful. Yeah. So Terrence Davies, Long Day Closes, that one specifically, it's about the, the magical, the magic experience of the cinema and how people use it to escape. I've never seen it. It sounds fantastic. I really want to seek that out for sure. Yeah. That sounds great. Much more subtle than the ones we've mentioned. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it sounds great. Uh, I'm going to cheat a little bit with my next puzzle piece and uh, go right back to Sam Mendes with American Beauty. Okay. Um, I I feel like in uh, a lot of ways, uh, our, our main young character, Stephen, is a black British Ricky Fitz in <laughs> yeah. a lot of ways. Yeah. And Hillary is a woman British uh, Lester Burnham. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if they had, you know, actually had some kind of sexual relationship like the uh, the uh, father was thinking they were. And, uh, you know, all kinds of questionable things happening, you know, uh, relationships, the uh, all these kind of broken people connecting with one another, like all those kind of themes that were being explored in American Beauty, they all kind of seem to be the same things that are being explored here. Mm -hmm. um, and you also got Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross's score taking a lot of cues, I feel like, from uh, that classic Thomas Newman score. True. And all a little heavy-handed, although I think American Beauty is still great. Yeah, I mean, American Beauty 
has aged okay. Yeah. It hasn't aged terribly. Right. It's definitely not as mind-blowing as when it arrived. Mm-hmm. I feel like that it was, you know, I feel like even Steven Spielberg has a story where he saw it in like an early cut and said that's the best picture of the year. Yeah. And this was like Sam Mendes's first major motion picture. So there was kind of a unanimous feeling that this movie was relevant and important and shocking and bold and all these things. Nowadays, it maybe feels a little heavy-handed, but yeah. I still think it plays better than Empire of Light, which yeah. is even more heavy-handed. Yeah. And I think it's because of the ham-fisted nature of the different story threads. Right, right. I think, you know, not to sound repetitive or to beat a dead horse but like if if sam mendez had picked one or two of these main story threads to weave together i think they could have been done more potently and more you know subtly yeah because he is such a he is a great storyteller yeah. so that well, all number one make toby jones a main character yeah the, the projectionist and uh and focus there like that is where the story is that yeah. it, yes it's cinema paradiso all over <laughs> again but that's where the story is i feel like yeah i mean it's funny, one of the other puzzle pieces I'll bring up now is maybe called Breaking the Waves, Lars von Trier's film. And it it's a great, I mean, again, these are directors that I have ups and downs with that don't always, you know, with him especially, it's like, I don't know if he's a genius or a hack or both, or how I feel on, about him on Tuesday is different on how I feel about him on Wednesday. Sure. And like some things are, you know, are just undenied genius. And one of them is Breaking the Waves, which is just a real stone cold masterpiece. And... The central performance in that is reminiscent of the Coleman performance in, in the center of Empire. Strike, okay. uh, Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> <laughs> that's my other puzzle piece. Yeah. Uh, the Empire of Light. Yeah. And that's so her Coleman's performance, which is really st- really fantastic. She's always great. Modulated really beautifully, especially yeah. in the even in the extremes, which where it came out of left field. Yeah. You know, and but really well, really beautifully performed. But yeah, I think that her story was even fascinating. You know, like, I, I think her, I love this, the thread of that she worked at a movie theater and never saw movies. Right, right. Like, that's a movie. That's, that, that's a movie. A, that's an interesting thing. And to that point, actually, I, I was thinking about that a lot after we watched it. Like, that is so, like, the local film community. Like, <laughs> yeah, I complain yeah. about this all the time. The people that are, like, they they claim to be, like, within the world of film, but, like, they just torrent everything and like yeah. they don't want to watch movies at the theater and they like like they don't give a shit about movies and it's like this woman like doesn't go and see movies even though she works in the theater that just it just boggles my mind yes well as you know i'm not, i'm not going to i might um you know make not make any friends with this comment although they don't like me anyway so it's yeah. fine um you have helped me promote cinema mondays on the show for years which we don't do anymore unfortunately i, no. I miss it but we did cinema mondays for eight years a free movie night every monday and it was almost every single monday for eight years we were committed yeah and we showed free movies uh from around the world uh every week it was free every week it was a different movie yeah and not once did we have a local filmmaker come yeah i mean never it's shocking it, it's 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 bananas yeah. i i don't know how else to put it like yeah, <laughs> the, I mean, the way that like to claim that you want to be a part of the world of film and then half of them think like oh hollywood or like you know the elite you know liberal right. blah 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 <laughs> blah like 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 why do you want to be in movies like yeah. why, why do you want to work in this industry yeah, they want to own a porsche i yeah. think <laughs> yeah that's that's it which yeah. is i think that the i mean the a lot. I mean, it's not that crazy. So many people at the highest possible levels just want to keep the Porsche in the driveway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know I mean, yeah. So I'm not that shocked. It's just sad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know I mean, yeah. It's a so, weird tangent, but you that know, was yeah. But yeah. it's I mean, interesting. Yeah. Nonetheless, absolutely. I'll go to another piece. Um, this is going to get away from the uh, film 
side of things here and speak more to the uh, a bunch of workers, like all getting to know each other and getting to getting to love their their little community there at the theater. I thought of Greg Matola's Adventureland, um, oh, yeah. a great movie uh, about a, a guy played by Jesse Eisenberg who has to take this summer job at this amusement park and he really doesn't want to. But once he gets there, ends up falling in love with one of his coworkers and having just the absolute time of his life. And even though, you know, this movie is, you know, certainly promoted as Olivia Coleman's movie, I mean, it is this Steven character yeah. more than anything. I mean, he, he is the main character played by Michael Ward. Um, it, it is him, like, finding a place for himself amidst all this turmoil of the early 80s and in that time and uh, finding love and finding friendships and finding reason to... Uh, you know, try to push forward in his life and, you know, go back to school and all those things. And so, so there's a lot going on with that character and, um, that camaraderie of, of, you know, finding these people who are kind of your people is uh, a big part of this movie. Mm -hmm. That's true. That's actually a great puzzle piece. Yeah. And one of the things that really just came to my mind as you were talking about it is how both main characters are these outcasts because mm -hmm. a big part of me at first was like, why are they attracted to each other? Right. I mean, it's obvious why she's attracted to him. I mean, he's blazing hot. That makes sure. sense. Sure. But I mean, not that Coleman is any, you know, she's, an, you know, she's a beautiful woman, but the idea that she's kind of made to be frumpy and be kind of You're right. strange and, you know, it's not that she's supposed to be kind of a sex symbol in the film. So what draws this guy to her? And I feel like it's, they're both the wounded Pigeon in the attic. Yes. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> another I'm, thread. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, Sam Mendes was like, "Damn it, they got that metaphor. No, um, it's supposed to be hidden." <laughs> That's on the director's commentary. On, like bitch. the twentieth anniversary. They both edition. have broken wings. <laughs> no, so, so. <laughs> no, so, uh, no, but I mean, that was actually something that just came to me now. Is yeah. that like that? What drew them together is they're both outcasts, which I suppose maybe draws a thread a little closer to both you know parts kind of sides of the movie is mm -hmm. that you know he's dealing with this as an outsider because of his race she's dealing as an outsider because of her mental health these are both things that are misunderstood in the 80s sure yeah, especially now then. yeah you know, yeah especially the 80s but and now as well yeah so there maybe there's something there where maybe that because we talked about what what provoked uh, Sam Mendes write this script. Like, right, you know, right. Where this, where's the genesis? Even if it is based on his experience, which yeah. I don't know if he slept with a with a schizophrenic woman or yeah, whatever. and he's certainly not a young black kid. Yeah, so. not that we're aware of. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So I, I I think maybe that's it. Maybe it's about outcasts in a time when the the, the outside world was especially ignorant. Mm -hmm. Although I'm hesitant to say that because in 50 years we'll be viewed as ignorant now. So it's yeah. hard to say words like that, you know, but I guess more ignorant than now. Sure. <laughs> and the movies are impervious to those things. Mm -hmm. I mean, the movies are a place of escape, escapism. Yeah. For many people. And uh, to look at it, even if it's more art film there, it's to provide a different view yeah. and away from real life. And so maybe that's, that's the thread. I'm just kind of slowly discovering it now talking to you, but yeah. I didn't see that. I didn't experience that during the film. Right. I'm only thinking about it now have I put the puzzle together. There you go. That's what this show is here for. Look at there us. There you go. Boom. Look at us. We're doing it. Chris, <laughs> what's your next piece? Uh, so I'm going to make, talk kind of about the race element and the interracial love story. I'm going to bring up a uh, Renner Werner Fassbender movie called Ali, Fear Eats the Soul. Okay. And it's a really wonderful film, which a film in and of itself is actually kind of a, 
a rehash or an update to the Douglas Sirk film, All That Heaven Allows. Okay. So I won't, I mean, you can, we'll use them as both puzzle pieces, but I'll kind of focus on Ali. Uh, but it's about uh, an, a middle-aged woman uh, who feels a white woman, which is you know, important to mention. Sure. Uh, and she is kind of lost and private and quiet and kind of a weirdo. And, and she goes to a dance hall and sees a big, young, strapping black man, a Moroccan man. And mm-hmm. he's uh, kind of this powerhouse. And they begin this affair. Yeah. And she wants to be open and doesn't want to hide it. And he's kind of part of the criminal underbelly a little bit. And he's somewhat poor. And, you know, but so she takes him in and, and they really fall in love. But her family is unable to accept it. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's just kind of... Sam Mendes has a directorial style that I think he comes from this type of cinema. He probably comes more from the art house than he does for major, sure. major blockbusters. Yeah. And I think that um, Fassbender is probably a major influence on him in general. And that story imagine. is very specific to, to that kind of feeling. Yeah, yeah. No, that 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 sounds like a a good one. Another one that I haven't seen, but um, that, that, that sounds like a really good one. And to that particular point like we were just talking about it before like you know why he would tell this particular story about this yeah. interracial relationship which is like the main crux even more so than you know the power of cinema like that mm-hmm. is like the center of the film in a lot of ways and uh you know especially with the mental illness aspect and that there's a lot going on there that uh it kind of leaves you wondering like what where did this come from and i i think you know films like that probably are kind of where he's coming from with wanting to tell a story like this because of stories that have been told before like that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's thing is, you know, I, I hate to be someone who is saying that I'm, I strive for a uh, formula. You know, I'm not saying that not by kind of poking fun at the fact that it's kind of all over the place doesn't suggest that I demand things that I've seen before mm-hmm. you know, for it to work, you know, but cause it's kind of a reductive version of that critique, which is like, you know, pick a movie. And I, by that you can extrapolate that like a movie we've seen a movie. Yeah. We understand, you know, like a, a movie that has some type of uh, formula that we can follow. And that's not necessarily what I mean. Yeah. Like, I admire its ambition. Yeah. You know, I'm confused by it. I'm confused by it, but I admire it because it's really more of a matter of if it works or doesn't it, yeah. as opposed to there being a certain set of rules you have to follow. Sure. And this one just felt like there was a little extra flour in the recipe. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it was just, you know, there's too many ingredients for the banana bread. You know yeah. what I mean? So, <laughs> so, but, uh, but it's, you know, so, the, so yeah. So when I think that back on movies like a Fassbender who, Fassbender really worked in melodrama, which is why he, uh, was a fan of Douglas Sirk. Douglas Sirk was big in the early 50s and late early 60s, all through that period of kind of big, glossy melodramas. Yeah. And Fassbender was a drunk, gay, anarchist, punk rock type figure. He'd right. make whole movies in 11 days, but yeah. they weren't these chaotic films. They were very delicate, beautiful, stylized pictures that you would never think were made in that amount of time. He'd take two and three films to can a year. Right. To give an idea, he made, I believe, 38 or 39 films in his life and died at 32. Hmm. Or 42 movies and died at 38, pardon me. Okay. And so, I mean, that's the kind of guy we're talking about. So he's the opposite of Douglas Sirk in terms of the, the large scale of his movies. And yet, they're very delicate and very beautiful. So the reason I bring that up is that he would he's an influence on me personally. Any sure. director that kind of encounters him, it's like finding, you know, He's like 
you know, after you get through the Bergmans and Kubricks and Fellinis, that, that's like the A string. Then you go and you find Fassbender and you're like, sure. oh, oh God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? And so I definitely think that um, dealing in the melodrama, but kind of giving it the urgency and the defiance that Fassbender did is what made that melodrama work to where right. I think Sam Mendes may have turned into the Hollywood guy. He's kind of an establishment filmmaker now. I don't know if he has the teeth yeah. anymore to pull off a movie like Empire of Light. Like, if right. he had a little bit more balls the way he had with uh, American Beauty, which was edgy and pushed something at that particular time, Empire of Light might just seem a little too comfortable mm. to really tackle yeah. the topics that it's trying to tackle. Yeah. Does that, I know that's around, it's kind of like a whirly gig thought process, but does that make sense? It, it makes sense, and yeah, and I, I would imagine it, it's... From the point of view of a Sam Mendes, it must be difficult just to even get into this, even though it's such a personal story that he wanted to tell. And obviously, yeah. like we talked about, it's the first thing he wrote himself to tell. And like, it must just be hard to get yourself back into that mindset after doing James Bond in 1917. Like, <laughs> sure. you know, it's like, yeah, it's big, just a different big world. splashy pictures. Yeah. Big, you know, that's the thing is he, I think he has become symbolic of establishment filmmaking for the in the in the art realm yeah you know in the highbrow realm yeah and that might be a, a hard mindset to break it even if he's aware of it yeah but that might be the one thing that's going on is that it's just doesn't it has the the ambition of a fassbender but it doesn't have the teeth yeah and that's so that's another way it connects to that movie besides it's it's subject matter yeah which is similar well, I'm glad that you're bringing up the relationship as, uh, into your pieces because I, I'm realizing like the majority of mine deal more with the uh, the cinema aspect of this, mm -hmm. and so uh, I'm glad we're getting both sides of that. Um, I'll go with another one that does talk more to the cinema side in a very different movie, but um, I thought about Be Kind Rewind from Michelle Gondry. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, as far as movies cinema being a, a place that brings community together and allows a space for people to share with each other and share these stories and be moved by them together and everybody interacting together. And while that movie uh, deals more with the creative aspect of it, like I'm always thinking about the end scene where the community all comes together and they yeah. get to watch it and just how moved everybody is by it all. And it's just such an amazing ending. And, uh, <laughs> you know, Empire of Light, it it poses that, you know, no matter what's happening to you, whether it is mental illness, relationships, institutional racism, all, all the things going on all in the this things movie. It's about. Yeah, all <laughs> these freaking things like yeah. sitting and watching a good movie can fix it all, you know? Yeah. Temporarily at least. Yes. Yes. You know. And yeah, I, I agree. I think that there's um Something, I mean, again, it's 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 hard to be two movie fans sitting around and talking about movies, you know, but I guess only movie fans are listening to the podcast, you know, so that's okay. We're in good company. Yes, But absolutely. the thing is, you know, yeah, I mean, our our community, which I wish was more of a community in general, sometimes the business side of things is so adversarial. You're trying mm -hmm. to make it in, in the business, and so the people that you're around are thinking your failure is their success and vice versa. And so it's somewhat of a cut, cutthroat thing. But the movie theater experience, kind of all that melts away. Sure. And so it's been, uh, it's nice that there's movies that, that touch on that and talk about the community aspect. And I like that the movie theater employees let her keep her coming back. Yeah. They don't really know where she's, where she's going to go if she keeps having these breakdowns. You yeah. Know, and, and they don't turn their back on her. Of course, the, the boss, the Colin Firth character, kind of uses her to his own ends. Yeah. But he gets humiliated and then banished. Yeah. As he should. Yeah. And um, 
but the rest of the staff really welcomes her back. Yeah. And that's an, I think that's symbolic of the movie lover mentality, really. Yeah. You know, if you remove the, the, the business side of it, movies are a very delicate group of people. They're a beautiful, yeah. thoughtful bunch. Yeah. So I like that that kind of feels that way in the film. Absolutely. So what do you got next? I'm going to talk about two films briefly, mm-hmm. uh, the work, but they're kind of the work of Hal Ashby. Okay. Uh, which he did be, uh, being there, sure. which is actually referenced in the movie yep. itself. She actually watches being. That's the movie she ends up seeing. That's the big one. Yep. But that's symbolic to me, especially because the Chauncey Gardner character is kind of a simple chaplain-like, childlike character. Sure. And I believe even Coleman's character was described as childlike at one point in the film, if I'm remember, maybe I'm misremembering. Mm-hmm. She is a complex adult woman. She's not mentally slow or anything of that nature, but she has a mental illness that makes her take medicine, Thorazine, I believe it was, right. that I think makes her feel foggy. Sure. And that fogginess, that simplicity, that kind of quiet dopiness is very reminiscent of a Chauncey Gardner. Sure. Um, and... So that I think there's a kind of a parallel in this misunderstood, simple, central character. Yeah. And then also um, to touch on that, I think, is in a movie called Harold and Maude mm-hmm. and that of the old young, you know, the, the, the what is it, the, the spring, winter or the summer, winter, May, December, May, December, yeah, that's yeah. what I'm trying to say, yeah. the May, December relationship. So I think that Hal Ashby in general, kind of his ability to walk the fine line of genre. Like he, he made comedies that were not funny and he made dramas that were not dramatic. And he, you know, he worked within, he blurred the lines of genre, which I think maybe Mendez was attempting to do with this film. Yeah. Uh, because there's so many genres at once. And so hit those two movies in general, though being there, especially for its literal appearance within sure. the film, yeah, yeah. its relationship to the main character. And then the, uh, the um, May December yeah. of Harold Amad. Absolutely, I had Harold Amad on my list as well, oh, and cool. I I didn't even think about being there as as central as it is to the film. You're absolutely right. Like theme wise, it like kind of fits too with that character. And, yeah, and uh, and and how uh, Olivia Coleman's character is. So yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense combining both of those uh, two Hal Ashby pieces there. So that's great. Sweet. Um, so that brings me to my final piece then, which, uh, again, like I said, uh, back to the, uh, power of cinema, it's the Nicole Kidman AMC ad. Um, (laughs) (laughs) we, we come to this place for magic. We come to AMC theaters to laugh, to cry, to care, because we need that somehow heartbreak feels good in a place like this. Oh God. Is that the real line? Yeah, absolutely. Is that, is that not this movie? I don't, it is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It is the AMC commercial. Yeah. The memes of that have been, are worth me sitting through (laughs) that commercial a million times. Yeah. Because it's so cringy. Didn't they pay like a billion dollars to do that? Probably. Such a disgusting amount I heard. She she deserves every penny. She does. She she, she killed it. I love Nicole Kidman. I really do. Because she makes small movies. She cares about art films. She does challenging stuff. She takes risks. Mm -hmm. So like, I'm a big fan of hers. And if they offered her big payday good for her for taking it you know i've always loved nicole kidman like in so many different things but you know when like i just kind of turned a corner i was like you know what i i'm i'm in for everything she's gonna do aquaman like (laughs) she is like so like just cgi ass kicking nicole kidman who knew that she would be good at that she could do everything you know yeah she really can yeah i mean I yeah sure I uh, why not <laughs> why not um, no yeah she I mean when I watched her another Lars von Trier but in Dogville sure and I was like man this is a woman that will really do stuff for art I mean, oh, she, yeah. you know 
And I'm, I, I always, no matter what, admire Tom Cruise and her for basically pausing their career for two years and working yeah. with Kubrick and stuff. Like that, the Eyes Wide Shut budget was $20 million, which at the time was Tom Cruise's salary. Yeah. That was the entire budget. So they basically did a movie for free, mm-hmm. essentially, and lived in London for two years and just stopped their career at the height of it. So yeah. I've always respected those two and Nicole Kidman, especially. Yeah. Because that's just incredible. Incredible. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're awesome. All right, so I have a f- just brief ones left. Okay, let's do them. So I have to say, my last real one is A Beautiful Mind. Okay. Because it's just one of those films that are, it's over-polished. Mm-hmm. It's, this one has the, the deficit of being based on a true story. Because John Nash, the mathematician that it's based on, had a much more complex and checkered, you know, when, when he was in his... Uh, schizophrenic phases. He was also homophobic and also had gay experiences. So mm-hmm. that was kind of a, you know, that was a strange um, paradox. He was also anti-Semitic during these things. So he yeah. was a much more challenging character than the movie version presents. Yeah, he wasn't sanded like, that he wasn't like down. Russell Crowe, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you know what I mean? Making yeah. umbrellas with his fingers in the sky. Like that was mm-hmm. not that dude. Yeah. So, and that it's still a very successful movie. I mean, one best picture. I even enjoy the movie, although I hesitate to say that. Yeah. I, I don't want to admit it, but I do. Yeah. Just well done. I can't help it. Uh, but it has, but I feel like Empire of Light has that kind of Ron Howard, Howardy polish. Yeah. Kind of has this kind of oversimplified look at, a, at difficult topics, but with a little bit of charm thrown in and a little whimsy thrown in yeah. that makes it more palatable. And it, of course, the more obvious reason is that it deals with schizophrenia. I feel like we almost maybe would have liked Empire of Light more if it came out in the early 2000s, like around that same time mm-hmm. where... Where there wasn't so much of like, a, oh, this is kind of of a time and doesn't really work anymore or something mm-hmm. like this, you know? Yeah, I think we're angrier now. Yeah. I think, you know, the economy has collapsed several times. There's been a global pandemic. The housing market's upside down and crazy. You have to work three jobs to do anything. Mm-hmm. You know, we're frustrated and, and agitated. And like, you know, as much as... There is this kind of beautiful sentiment, which is like, we want to escape, we yeah. go back to the movie and go to a safe place. Yeah. I feel like sometimes even in our entertainment, we would, we would benefit from a little edge. Yeah. I think we need to exercise those feelings of tension. Sure. And very polished, very establishment. I use that word establishment over and over again, but it's just coming off of going, doing this festival tour and seeing these huge movies that are supposed to be the art house films, and they have $180 million budgets. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, these are just establishment filmmakers giving each other gold sticks. I mean, yeah. this is not, you know, art movies, not art house. So it, there's a, even, there's a, there's a, a artifice to that that's frustrating. And not just for me as a filmmaker trying to, you know, break into the room, but everyone, everyone's yeah. frustrated at this time. So yeah, yeah, I think movies that are too softball might run into that trouble where they're sure. a little frustrating yeah yeah i think if if i think if the beautiful beautiful mind came out today we'd be like bullshit yeah oh god yeah we would rip it apart <laughs> yeah and it won the oscar and everybody for the most part loved it yeah it's still pretty dang good holds yeah. up as a movie where you if you can overlook the fact that it's virtually made up yeah then fine yeah these two beautiful people can get through anything and yes. cry at a nobel prize speech which is so funny from the charlie kaufman film I, yeah i yeah. was like that was the best part of that film <laughs> yeah rolled on the ground like oh my god is this a beautiful mind but anyway, so, beautiful, so i don't want to dwell on it too much but there's a lot with the beautiful mind it's oversimplification of big complex psychological yeah. aspects it's polish uh the the ron howardness of it all yeah um i then want to briefly talk about the goldfinch Oh, okay. And here's why, though. It's mm-hmm. not for the reason you think. It has nothing to do with the story. It has I, I never with... actually saw it. I remember like everybody kind of made fun of it when yeah, it came out. You've missed nothing. Yeah, you know, yeah. But 
Roger Deakins mm-hmm. was the cinematographer of The Goldfinch and of Empire of Light. Yeah. And the one thing that was, you know, un- and this is going to sound like it's canned, but it's true. The guy is a master. It's, yeah. You know, he's a really beautiful cinematographer, really knows what he's doing, has a style, but it never interferes with the film itself makes very beautiful images. And so when it comes to the goldfinch, I think that there's a visual uh, parallel. They kind of look and feel similar in terms of their use of light and their mm-hmm. camera movements and the choices of compositional methods. But they both don't work. Mm. I think Empire Light is a superior film. I feel like Goldfinch crashed and burned. Right. It was just not a good picture. But... Yeah. <laughs> um, and Empire Light is four good pictures, just on top of each other, as we sure. said. It's the sloppy Joe of movies this year. Mm, yeah. So, um, but they both are be- visually beautiful, and they both have Deacons at the helm visually, and it is a potent, brilliant visual and sumptuous experience without being overkill. Yeah. I think Goldfinch was maybe even more sumptuous. So there's like a lot of like dust and light beams and oh, kind sure. of those types yeah. of things. But it kind of had that visual quality about it. So those are similar. And they both don't quite work, so that's similar in that way. Nah. And the final one mm. that I have to say with if before I leave, otherwise my diehard fan base will yes. get up, will turn off their computers and their phones. Let's hear it. The Shining. Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if you noticed the carpet mm. of the movie theater. Yeah, but it's pre- it's not the actual pattern because that'd be too distracting. Right. You know, it's there's too much visual space it takes up for there to actually be the pattern of the iconic orange and brown shining hotel the octagonal one but yeah. it is orange and brown it does have an octagon octagon type pattern and it's very very reminiscent of uh the shining mm-hmm. and the shining came out in 1980 yeah yeah so i'm gonna say there's a legit oh and of course on the wall this this you could say this about everyone but there's a picture of kubrick on the wall when they kind of when he scans the wall toward right, the end right. and has all the filmmakers and there's, I think, a picture of paths of glory if i remember it specifically either okay. that, one of the early black and white kubricks but I'm gonna have to say the Shining, yeah. because I'm a, I'm uh, contractually obligated to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely you are. But yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, that, I, you're you're totally right. And I I feel like that was a uh, a thing of the time, like those just awesome patterns and stuff like yeah. that. But that is could be I a mean, coincidence for sure. Yeah, but that right. I mean, come on, it is 1980. It's kind of it's kind of perfect for it to uh, be a nod. A little it has nod. to be right. Yeah, come yeah. on. I think so. I feel like the Empire itself, the Empire Theater, is almost uh, overlook. Hey, why not? Place full of ghosts. Yes. All these films, you know, you can. There's another thread for you. There's another thread. It needed <laughs> one more. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. I would, yeah, you're right. I would have loved. Let's think real quick before we go. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about how, what movies are in it. There's the. Blues there, Brothers? No, no, no. I mean, what what oh. films could Empire of Light be by itself? Oh, individually? oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It um, could be the social commentary 1980s skinhead movie. Sure, sure, yeah. Right? It could be the... Could, Which, by, by the way, uh, the skinhead's banging on the glass. I, I thought of Dawn of the Dead. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> so you get a little uh, yeah. visual thing there. But but yeah, no, uh, the turmoil there. Uh, Could the be a social heads. commentary social yeah, movie or yeah, a skinhead you, movie. You got a May-December romance. May-December. Uh, you've got, of course, The Power of Cinema. Which is like what could be symbol as the projectionist and the young boy. Uh-huh. Teaching the young boy about the art of cinema. That could be its own film. Yep, yep. There's the mental illness woman breakdown. Yes. Movie, the woman that, you know, has to escape as an outsider. Mm-hmm. That's four right there. Yeah, yeah. We're already at a four and without even like going too deep into anything. Yeah. Like... Those are the four main ones that are then wo- kind of interwoven. Yeah. Yeah. All in the movie about the power of the cinema, uh, you know, allegedly. So it's like, yeah, yeah. it's it's a little much to kind of all throw together, but 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think you said it. I think um, as far as like closing thoughts or anything like that, like there are a lot of solid things happening, just too much all at once. And that kind of is the story of this movie, I feel like. Yeah, the thing is, there's... I've never seen a movie that could be a puzzle piece for itself. <laughs> yeah. I did write down Empire of Light on my list. Yeah. No, yeah. I'm just being extra harsh for comedic <laughs> sake. But uh, no, it's, you know... Uh, yeah, and the thing is, is that I found myself getting intrigued by every element. Mm -hmm. But then I was just pulled away from it yeah. to explore some other part. And... I felt like that kind of was a balancing act that I kept falling off the, you know, off the, off the rope. You know, yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't kind of stay interested. Yeah. Um, the thing that kept it all tied together was Deacon's visual, you know, prowess, his ability and his, the, the his craft was evident throughout. And so that kind of makes it congealed in, in, in a way. Yeah. But character wise and, and even the, with a story of, of schizophrenia, that's a, that's a challenge in and of itself. In a sure. Screenplay, by yeah. itself. Yeah, it's hard to think about it tonally. Yeah, you know how to because it's such an erratic disease. So how, if you want to have you experience what it's really like, the movie itself will be erratic. Well, then pl pl plop that in the center of a, a already too many chefs in the kitchen. Yeah, right. Type of thing. Yeah. So I feel for it a lot. I like, I want to like it more than I do. And it's one of those movies that I might, you know, go back and revisit, and it might be one of the ones that I know are flawed, but that I like to just kind of live in for two hours. Hmm. You know, because I like I like the old movie feel and. Yeah, I like the world it kind of created, but and there's so many things you admire in like the performances. Yeah, you could do worse as far as a movie to just sit and live in for two hours. It's, yeah, uh, it's a great setting. So. Yeah, it is. Yeah, even though it's like the 1950s slash 80s. You're right, a little of both. But, you know. <laughs> well, I think that does it for Empire Light. Chris, is there another movie you watched recently you'd like to recommend to our listeners? Yeah, there's actually two films in theaters right this second. I'm not sure when you plan to release this, but mm -hmm. they, because we're in Las Vegas, they might be gone by the time this comes out. But if you're anywhere else, if you're in L.A. or New York, see Tar. Mm. And that's playing. I was had the, it's my favorite film from Venice. It was a masterful film by uh, Todd Fields and Kate Blanchett's masterful in it. Uh, so see that as soon as you can before it goes. And also Triangle of Sadness, which is the Palm d'Or winner from Cannes. It is a bizarre, strange, gross, fabulous, very Louise Bunuel type. Uh, not Louise, Louise Bunuel. <laughs> I said mm. Louise, his wife. Uh, uh, <laughs> Louis, uh, Louise Bunuel type vibe. Very strange, very unique. Uh, and those are the two movies that are playing right this second that you should run out and see. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, Tar is the next thing I'm going to see, but uh, hopefully I get to see it in the theater. I really hope so. Tar is the way to go. Oh, okay. I like Triangle of Sadness. Like, you know, there's the big debate of should it won or should it this, and I mean, it's all BS anyway. Yeah. It's interesting, which is the most important thing. Right. And Tar, to me, is a flat-out masterpiece. Yeah. I was blown away. Uh, not to sound like, you know, I don't know. I was somewhat underwhelmed during Venice. I was kind of shocked this was the best the year had to offer. Yeah. But Tar really was su superb. Awesome. Chris. Tell us a little more about your trip and tell us what you got going on right now. Oh, man. So have you guys, as you guys have heard, um, I haven't been here in a while, but last yeah. time I was here, I was plugging a movie called Bizarre Fantastica, which is the film, my most recent film uh, shot in Italy. And I was just in Europe for four months touring it, which was a huge honor. Best summer of my life. As I mentioned, I had the opportunity to promote it and show it out of competition at Cannes. And I also got to promote it in Venice and then a million wonderful festivals in between. We did eight countries, 41 cities. It was absolutely fantastic. Now I'm back, and uh, it looks like there might be a TV show version of Bizarro somewhere on the horizon. We're working on that now. Uh, I got a play in Paris, which I think I've also plugged in the past, called L'Imposteur, and that's a half English, half French play that's getting produced, and will be on the stages of France in 2023. 
So those are the big main things going on right now. And uh, it was just a wild ride for Bizarro. So thanks for everyone who's been supportive and watching it and talking about it and keeping it alive for all this time. I know you guys are probably sick of uh, hearing it, <laughs> but I appreciate you uh, being as enthusiastic as you've been all this time. So thank you. Hey, I, I'm so like, it's been awesome seeing your whole tour and everything and very excited to see what comes next. Awesome. And, thanks, man. Uh, as always, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. I'm all, as always, happy to be here, happy to do it, and very thankful. Thanks. I'm Josh Bell. And I'm Jason Harrison. We co-host a podcast called Awesome Movie Year. Each season, we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. We deep dive into these specific years, and we pick out why they were such great years for films. We go over the biggest hits, the biggest flops, the best picture, and some personal picks, some cult classics. Years we've covered in past seasons include 1994, 2003, 1977, and 1984, and we've got all of film history to look forward to. So check us out at awesomemovieyear.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation about Empire of Light. Thanks to Chris Cranock for joining me on that one. And thank you to all of you for listening. If you enjoy what we're doing here on Piecing It Together with the puzzle pieces and finding the possible influences of these new films, drop us a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts or Good Pods or Spotify. We'd really appreciate it. Five stars would be extra nice. And, uh, of course, make sure you're subscribed while you're there. Or following. Don't they call it following now? Whatever they call it. Uh, make sure you do that. You could also follow us on social media at PiecingPod and join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, where we continue the conversation about all the movies we talk about here on the show. Uh, I mentioned my New York trip in that conversation because I was just getting ready to leave when we recorded that. Um, just so you know, I am back, and uh, it was a great trip. And I don't think I mentioned that on any other previous episodes since I've been back. So why not now, even though uh, this episode comes out like a month after I got back? I, what is time? Anyway, uh, speaking of time, I'm spending all my time getting ready to release my new album, More Content, and also uh, finishing up my next album, which is insane. That There's so much music that I'm working on right now. You can find some sneak peeks of that album and the next album, as well as uh, other advanced music and other great stuff over on the Patreon, the Produced by David Rosen Patreon, where I combine bonus and advanced content from Piecing It Together, Awesome Movie Year, and my music career. Check it out, patreon.com slash Rosen. We appreciate you just listening to the show and listening to my music, but if you want to, you know chip in that way uh we certainly appreciate that and speaking of that new album the pre-order should be live now at the time this episode goes up it was uh set to go live december 2nd uh so i think that's right around the time this episode uh was scheduled to release but um yeah it's coming december 30th though it'll be available for sale it'll be available for streaming and let's play a song from that new album to close out this episode. This is a track called Distance. I really love this track. I hope you enjoy it. And we'll be back with more Piecing It Together real soon.
an All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.